These last weeks, although not last week because it was a joint service, I've been looking uh, at aspects uh, and the context too of the emotional life of our Lord. And really what sparked it for me uh, is this book by B.B. Warfield, uh, The Person and Work of Christ. And um, at my previous church, which is a long time ago now, Lansdowne Free Church, um, I was inspired by an article, well, it was three articles actually in there, um, on the emotional life of our Lord Jesus Christ by B.B. Warfield. And uh, I preached uh, some sermons there now. Um, and I kind of adopting a different approach here. We're kind of talking through the Bible, which is I call what the Wednesday night is as well. I was in that was with Will the other day. And he reminded me of something which I hadn't, well, say reminded me, because I hadn't ever noticed it before. You know that story of the axe where Eutychus sits in the window and falls asleep at midnight because Paul is going on and on and on. Um, and uh, then Paul raises him from the dead or from bad condition. Um, and, um, excuse me, I just want to get rid of that little notice that told me I'm being recorded. Um, the yeah he, he he's raised up anyway and they will rejoice and then paul goes on again but william pointed out to me that the word there of paul is not actually that he's preaching but he's dialoguing <laughs> talking through so i thought well there you go so paul did it first of all like we do it, and secondly it took a long time so it's, it's a good way of uh, of teaching really talking through um you, so you don't fall asleep well <laughs> yeah, but that's because he'd started quite in the afternoon and it was 12 o'clock by that time. And the, the, the man was young. <laughs> well, you know what they say of a good sermon? There wasn't a sermon there, but was it? That um, a good sermon, some arise from it strengthened and others awaken it refreshed. So um, I trust we'll all be both actually strengthened and refreshed this morning um, in our dialogue, our talking through the Bible. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can indeed talk it through. We can preach it. We can uh, share it, witness to it, read it, study it, learn it, obey, obey it or disobey it when we are not walking with you. Um, but it reveals everything we need to know about everything we need to know. So bless us now as we continue this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just by way of recapitulation, uh, which is short for re the long version of recap. Um, we started on the 9th of May, I think, and we looked at the two natures of Jesus Christ, God and man. Now, we have body and soul, or body and spirit. Not, some people call it tripartite. They distinguish between soul and spirit, and they might well be right. Uh, but the spirit in us is really the Holy Spirit coming into it. Um, Jesus had two natures of a totally different uh, order, uh, human and divine. He was God in the body. And uh, he had very strong emotions, as we shall see again this morning. And uh, we have to ask, did these emotions come from his being a man or from being God or both? Um, and uh, to what extent are they the same as our emotions? Remember, he was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. 
I think we often sin with our emotions, don't we? Because often our emotions override the way we should think or the way we should believe. Not always. There's nothing wrong with emotions. God created them and Jesus had them. It's what we do with them or what the Holy Spirit does with them that matters. So that was the first thing. Then we went on to see Jesus was lowly in heart. Um, the heart is the seat of the emotions. I'll pat my heart there, but you can't see that. Um, and um, we always talk about the heart. We show hearts on emojis and the Valentine's Day and everything else. Um, and they've now discovered that you can indeed die of a broken heart, that uh, um, your body can be changed, the heart can be changed as, as a result of sorrow. But uh, people of any poetic bent have known that for a long time. Third, I've got these listed here. We looked at the fact we're not orphans. We're not being left. We're not deserted. God's our father. And um, Jesus had a care for that. He's up in heaven, the friend of sinners, but he didn't leave us as orphans. Uh, fourthly, and we looked at uh, splanknizomai, or splanknizo, which is this wonderful Greek word, from feeling it from the guts. And when it talks about mercy, that's the word that's used. Um, there's a, a sort of more polite word, eleo, which we have in the word curia eleison, Lord have mercy on us. Christa eleison, some of you particular traditions will know that. Um, but that isn't the word that's generally attributed to Jesus. Rather, this rather gutsy word, which is how he felt compassion towards people. And then we looked at the fact that really you can't have emotions. Well, you can have emotions without faith, but it's very dangerous. And Jesus had complete faith. He's the pioneer of faith. Um, he was the when he came down to this earth. He had to show faith in his father in every regard. Um, and this applies in the Old Testament as well, actually. He led them through the brother says. And that's the angel of the Lord who went with them was indeed Jesus before he was in the flesh. Then we looked at um, the Sunday before last, the various aspects of his love. And um, I couldn't remember... Um, what uh, the fourth love was, or the first one really, in um, Lewis's book and um, the four loves, and Roger reminded me, it's Storgate, which is affection. Um, I mean, the, the animals have that for their own young, don't they? It's amazing how they fight for their own young and care for their own young. And it's obviously basic to human nature. Uh, can a mum, mother forget her child, you know, uh, her sucking child? So that's the first one. The second one, of course, is um, philia, which is friendship. Era, um, er, eros, eros is, which is um, uh, carnal love. And, and uh, the, the last one is agape, which is um, self-giving love. The others find gratification in the object, but not that love, that one. And remember, it says in 2 Peter, add agape to your philadelphia that's not a way of enhancing a cheese um, um philadelphia means love of the brethren or love of brothers and sisters and uh, that's fine and it's good to have fellowship the ladies had a really good day yesterday i hear very very good um with joy thank you joy for organizing that um but simply having fellowship with each other isn't enough we have to add agape 
which is love that looks out, it's self-giving. It doesn't actually derive, doesn't seek to derive anyway, uh, benefit from this, the people we're directing into. That's the love of God. When it says God so loved the world, it doesn't mean he was desperate, desperately in love with the world. Uh, you know, it wasn't a sort of Valentine's Day thing. Uh, it means his self-giving love was for us. And uh, we're to add that to our Philadelphia. All right? Love of the brethren. Now, last week, of course, was the joint meeting. We looked at our motto for the year again. Um, and this week, I want to look at the Lord's anger. Um, there's probably just a couple more I'll do after this. One on his joy. And um, just one on coming back really to the practical application of this. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, but one who is tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin, is able to help those being tempted. In other words, he understands he's our emotions because he's got strong emotions himself and can help us in the weaknesses of our emotions. Trouble with our emotions, they tend to lead us into sin very easily. And, of course, that didn't happen with Jesus. In fact, not letting our emotions lead us into sin is actually very hard. So the other is an absurdity because at all times he was led down every by Satan and I suppose not his own mind, but um, certainly by Satan into, into things which uh, are tempting to us, but he never actually succumbed to those things. So he's able to help us. Right, now, I've jotted some things down here to talk about. Um, I will just remember, mention this. In uh, Isaiah 28, and I think it's verse 12, is it 21? I forget now. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Isaiah 28, well, it does matter, but I won't, not for what I'm saying now. It, it says um, about God's strange work. And uh, there are two works of God, did you know that? Creation and redemption. And they're both finished works. Jesus finished redemption on the cross and God finished creation on the sixth day. But there's also this thing in Isaiah 28 called his strange work, which is his wrath. His wrath. Which is a very interesting way of describing God's anger. It's not something, if you like, that he wants to be, but because he's holy, he is angry at sin. Which leads us really to a number of points that I've just jotted down here. The first one, what is anger? Anyone like to give an answer to that? You have to unmute yourself. One definition could be as a response to injustice. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Anything else? Well, in fact, you've hit the nail on the head, really, Michael. Uh, I put it down as a, a, a response to a perceived moral wrong. Now, the word perceived is very important because actually we might react to things when they, we shouldn't. But to us, they seem unjust or not right or we feel our rights are trodden on or something like that. 
so there's something out there, though it might be in here, of course, as well, which causes us to be angry. Now, it's not wrong to be angry. Let me say that. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about the Lord's anger if it was wrong to be angry. Some people sort of imply that it is. No, no, it's not wrong to be angry. Um, in Ephesians, Paul tells us, be angry, but do not sin. <laughs> Ever been able to do that, I wonder? <laughs> Have I ever been able to do that? And then, by way of kind of glossing on that, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, that's very important for married couples, isn't it? Or was it William Cooper? He was never married, I don't think. Uh, he did say this, uh, the happiest, the kindest and the happiest pair will find occasion to forbear and something every day they live to pity or perhaps forgive. Okay, so you who are married and I who was married, uh, married a sinner and my dear wife certainly married a sinner. Um, and uh, sinners clash even when they're redeemed. So each day there's much to... Uh, to uh, both accept and forgive. That's how, how a sweet marriage works. <laughs> now, if we don't do that, this is my way of introduction, I suppose, before we're looking at, uh, which is actually, it is re relevant to our Lord. Put our anger to bed when we go to bed, you know, in another room that is, or outside, in the dog kennel, then what builds up is resentment. And I suppose more relationships are killed by resentment than anything else. And some relationships are killed because a person's heart gets completely drawn to someone they shouldn't. But I guess majority of breakdowns in relationships are because of resentment build up i think it's jay adams in, in, in his book i think it's in christian living in the home that excellent book but a long time since i read it he talks about a marriage counselor and um this couple came to this counselor and sat there the man was sitting there rather meekly and the woman rather aggressively and she slammed down a book if i remember with all the things that she perceived he'd done wrong And uh, so this was her case. She literally rested her case on the table. And uh, actually what she wrote was apparently accurate. But I think the counselor said something like, it's a long, long time since I read it. I've never met such a bitter, twisted lady in my life as you. <laughs> so he spoke to her rather than him, first of all. Resentment is an evil. And you know, our Lord Jesus Christ never had it. He was despised and rejected above all men. But he did not become resentful. Now, I say this to myself, 
I said to all of you, you can resent God, you can resent your partner, you can resent other people, you can resent your family, you can resent your children, you can resent the prime minister, you can resent the opposition, you can resent the Scottish nationalists, uh, you can do what you like. But it's something that Christians should not do. And that's why Paul does not forbid anger in Ephesians 4 and verse 26. He says, be angry, but sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I have to say this to you and myself and to you all this morning, that um, if there is resentment in your heart towards things that have been done against you, it's got to be taken to the cross. And you have to repent of it as a sin. It's actually, God regards it as worse than the thing that you are complaining about. Did you know that? God showed me that many years ago in a very dramatic kind of way. So your resentment is actually worse sin in God's eyes than the thing that you are complaining about. Because he's the judge, not you. Romans chapter 2. Okay, so Jesus was despised and rejected more than anyone else. Uh, but he did not have resentment. So maybe, uh, you know, before we sort of go any further, you've got to pray a little prayer in your heart. You don't need to get up and get down on your knees. Uh, you can do it uh, still looking at me here, but uh, pray in your heart forgiveness for resentment and the Lord Holy Spirit to help you out of it. Okay. Now, when someone is angry with you, they, they've always got a reason um, it might be a mistaken one. It might be misunderstanding. It might be something in them. But uh, how do you deal with it? Do you answer back the same way? Well, Proverbs gives the answer. A gentle answer turns away wrath. <laughs> um, but it can be stirred up equally the other way around. So remember that. The, I've got... Um, when we have our church or the name, as I see it, the ship um, um, out there decorated, I'm going to put this sign up, which I've got, believe it or not, at the range. Now, some of you have seen it there, but um, I was absolutely amazed at it. I, I, I saw it and I thought, there must be something wrong with that. It's from a worldly source, <laughs> but nothing wrong with it. And uh, it's called Ways to Love. So if you saw me getting up during the worship, I realized I need to go and get it. And I won't read them all, but the first one is listen without interrupting. Though I do give you full permission to interrupt me. I just hasten to act. <laughs> okay. And then speak without accusing. And then a few more. And then forgive without punishing i think that's a really good one feel good honor without fail so yes anger has a place important place in our lives it's just a reaction to a perceived wrong but don't go to bed angry don't let anger build into resentment turn it creatively so let's look at our Lord. Um, now, 
The idea of Jesus being angry may sound odd to some people, uh, but you only have to turn to the book of the Revelation and you find about, uh, well, I'll read a bit from chapter 6. This is about the uh, return of the Lord, really. The, the judgment that will happen when the Lord returns. Not the last judgment. That's uh, when the dead are resurrected. But listen to this. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful. This is the great army gathered against Israel under uh, the Antichrist. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's difficult to think of lambs as wrathful, but Jesus is the present time he's not he didn't come to judge the amazing thing is this is the day of grace and anyone no matter what they've done whoever they are no matter what it is can come to the cross for pardon and you'll receive it guaranteed guaranteed by god a lot of products, you, well, all products you have come with a year's guarantee. doesn't mean very much sometimes. Sometimes it's extended. Uh, but it's never absolute, is it? But God's guarantees are. And salvation is guaranteed. But, you know, that doesn't mean there's no anger in Jesus Christ. If you go back to an uh, extraordinary verse in Genesis 19 and verse 24, you'll find it's the Lord on earth who was one of those three angels or those three men who came to Abraham. That was actually Jesus before his incarnation. Called down Yahweh on earth, called down fire from Yahweh in heaven. That was Jesus before he was incarnate, before he became Jesus, the son of God, the Logos. He'd been talking to Abraham, and Abraham worshipped him. He was Yahweh on earth at that time. And he called down fire and brimstone from Yahweh in heaven. Okay, so the idea that Jesus is meek and mild in the sense that, you know, he tolerates anything uh, and he can get away with anything is a complete lie. Toleration, actually, which is extolled as a virtue in our culture, is not a virtue at all. There's nothing good about toleration. At all. Um, it's not that we interfere and judge everything. But the Bible's uh, answer to, the, to things that are wrong are, is mercy. And renewal by the Holy Spirit to bring things as they should be. And actually, <laughs> our current emphasis on tolerance is incredibly intolerant. It's tolerant of only the things that uh, a certain elite want us to be tolerant of. 
and incredibly intolerant of other things, other people, including many Christians and free speech. So that word is absolutely abused. It's one of those uh, aspects of our present culture that the word toleration, tolerance and toleration is a completely abused word. It's not a very good word in the first place. You don't just tolerate things. You seek to get to the heart of them. If they're wrong, to confess them, if it's in yourself, and help others to, and get cleansing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way forward for our society. We're, we're in a hide to nowhere, except hell, at the present time. So, the lamb is wrathful. Okay, now, let's give some examples. Of course, the most obvious example is the cleansing of the temple, or the two cleansings of the temple. The Lord did it once at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded in John's Gospel, and once um, at the end of his ministry on earth, uh, which is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yes, I think it's in Luke. It may not be. It's certainly in Matthew and Mark. Okay. Now, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, uh, it says, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. And uh, it was because it was being used as a, as a shop, um, profits were being made. It was mainly to do with sacrifices and money changing. Um, you had to have... Uh, Jewish money for certain things in the temple. You had to buy your sacrifice uh, and there were plenty of people around to make a handsome profit or ugly profit. And uh, they were actually in the temple courts. When it says in the temple, it doesn't mean in the inner sanctum. It doesn't even mean in the first part where the priest ministers. Uh, it's in the court. You know, it goes out from there. And then there are, there are other courts outside of that. Um, and uh, we read about it in John chapter 2. The pastor of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found uh, those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers uh, sitting there. And he made a whip of cords, and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he uh, poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told these who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then if you look in Matthew 21, that was at the beginning of the ministry, of course. Matthew 21, uh, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, Jesus took a whip, drove them out, overturned their tables, and was very angry. I've told you before, a story about my school, I'm afraid, it's going back a long way. We used to call each other by our surnames. <laughs> Seems strange now, but we did. Um, and uh, the English teacher, Mr. Elloway, was not a believer. Um, and um, 
when he got agitated himself, he used to twitch like a hamster, you know, like that. And uh, he got very agitated one day about Jesus driving out the people from the temple. I don't know why we... Um, and he said, surely, he said, surely it wasn't like Jesus to do something. Young man, Grazen by name, put his hand up and said, please, sir, it must have been because he did. Absolutely right. A nice, simple response. How dare we put out false picture of a namby-pamby Jesus in place of the real Jesus Christ. Okay. So he was angry there. He was angry at unbelief. Mark chapter 3. Um, the man came into the temple, or the uh, synagogue rather, with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. They were concerned about law. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. And it's the real word there, orgy in Greek. He was furious with them. With their hypocrisy. And their legalism. And their total lack of compassion for this man. Wrath, that's the word. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. So these men and women, so as many men emphasize here, had the Son of God in their midst. The man of power, sovereign, almighty power, and the man of sovereign, almighty, and all-encompassing compassion. And they were just concerned to see whether he kept their interpretation of the law. Unbelief and hypocrisy, and Jesus was furious with them. He was furious at the storm. If you look in Matthew 8 and parallel passages, he reprimanded the storm. Remember, they were asleep. He was asleep, rather. Uh, and um, the great storm came on the lake. Can, can. You can get, they could be very few meters high in some of the waves. When the, it's because Galilee isn't in the valley. And did you know it's sort of like six or 700 feet below sea level? Did you know that? And the Dead Sea is 1,200 feet below sea level. Whatever they are, meters, I suppose, 400, yeah. Um, and the winds can whoosh down the valley. They still can. And whip up enormous storms. Um, and, by the way, the location of Galilee, 600 feet below sea level, is why it's so um, fertile. They used to have lots of harvests a year, as Josephus says. Um, it's warm, you see? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the wind would rush down there and um, storm would, and it still can, you know, many, many feet high or meters, whatever. Um, and uh, Jesus was asleep and they woke him up and they said, don't you master, don't you care that we perish? 
he rebuked their faith. You know. But then he rebuked the storm. And it's, the word means really angrily. He spoke very angrily, reprimanding. He snorted at the storm. And a miracle happened. Not only did the wind drop, and that can happen even without a miracle. But what can't happen without a miracle? The sea became calm. <laughs> that doesn't happen. You slosh around in your bath, um, then you can't suddenly stop. You can stop sloshing, but you just can't stop the water uh, suddenly going around you. So the chaos in the elements and in, in the weather is actually part of the curse. Did you know that? And it got worse, much worse, far worse after the flood. You know, when the seasons came in and the rainbow and everything. Um, cold and heat and all that. There was a temperate climate before that, which is why you get to, uh, all sorts of equatorial for us animals up in the uh, frost uh, in the Arctic. Um, so Jesus had the same weather that we have. And he angrily rebuked it. And it was a great calm. Not only did the wind drop, but the waves ceased. Then we find the same thing used for disease. He, in Luke 4 and verse 39, I was looking up some of these references actually before I came out this morning. Here's the story of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And he, Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever angrily. This fever got hold of her and he rebuked it in anger and it left her. My goodness, what a healing it was. Immediately, she rose and began to serve them. <laughs> she poor lady, she wasn't allowed to have a couple of days in bed to get over it. Um, she got up straight away because she was so healed and uh, prepare some food. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? I, I, all this stuff is quite interesting to try and work through because Jesus rebuked disease and storm. And therefore, that's true of COVID-19. But nonetheless, it was God who put the curse on creation in the first place. But Satan is described as having the power of death. I put that in, in uh, my letter. You may not, you only got that last night. Uh, I was delayed in writing it. But one before. You've got to do that. I might ask you solemnly. I'm charging you to do that, please. <laughs> You'll see why when you do study this. Um, so how does Satan have the power of, of death when God imposed death on Adam? That's not easy. It's all to do with God's sovereignty. Uh, I can't give you a straight answer to it. But nonetheless, there's evil 
in disease, evil in COVID-19, even though in the sovereignty of God, I'm sure he's doing many things through it. And Jesus rebuked in anger the diseases which grip people and incapacitated them and ruined their lives. There's probably a lot more demonic uh, aspect to disease than perhaps we give credit for. C.S. Lewis, again, just to quote him, he used to say that some people fall into the trap of dismissing the demonic totally. Others fall into the trap of of seeing it everywhere. Well, there's enough evil in us uh, to do to be led astray by our own desires. But nonetheless, there's demonic activity everywhere. And Jesus engaged with it. It became so uh, uppermost in his ministry because he really attacked it. Most of the time, it's submerged because we don't attack it. But I'll tell you, when we get praying, which are beginning to do seriously for revival, we will see the power of evil rise up. But it will be, it is defeated, but it will happen. It will be disturbing when God moves. It always is, always has been. And until the new heaven and earth come, it will be. Always. There's another very strange aspect to this. With the healing of the leper in Matthew 9, or no, blind man, blind men, I should say, in Matthew 9, and the healing of the leper in uh, Mark 1, Jesus was angry with them. He sternly rebuked them not to tell anyone. And he showed his anger towards them, even though he'd healed them. Now, was this just their condition or was it something more than that? Was he angry with the leper for breaking the regulations of contact with people? Social distancing as put out in the law? I don't know. I don't really know why he was so angry, but he was angry with the men themselves, the lepers, the leper and the blind men in Luke, Matthew 9, rather. Um, I'm worth just reading what uh, Warfield says about it. Um, Matthew tells us he was enraged at them. That's the blind men saying, uh, dot, dot, dot. The rage may no doubt be thought to find its outlet in the threatening words which follow. Raging at him, or having raged at him, he straightway sent him forth. When it is added and saith to them, see that thou say nothing to anyone, this is what was called the AV, a subsequent moment in the transaction is indicated. How our Lord's rage was manifested, we're not told. And this is really just as true in the case of Matthew as in Mark. That's the, uh, so the blind men and the leper. To say he was arranged at, enraged at them, saying threaten, threatening words, is not to say merely he threatened them, it's to say that a threat was uttered, and that this threat was a suitable accompaniment of his rage. But it didn't stop him being compassionate. And 
This anger, he says, did not inhibit the operation of his compassion, but appears in full manifestation as its accompaniment. So healing and rage at the same time. This may indicate that its cause lay outside the objects of his compassion in some general fact, the nature of which we may possibly learn from other instances. And he then goes on, which is the last thing I want to highlight today, the raising of Lazarus. Now, Jesus knew that Lazarus was ill, but he didn't go to, to, to heal him. And people were mystified by this. It says he loved Lazarus. He was his friend, his philos. So eventually, when he did go, Lazarus was already dead and buried. They had to bury quickly because of the hot weather there. And uh, when he said he was going to raise him, uh, talking about him in the tomb, it's just as though he's by now he stinketh, as it says in the AV, you know. Decomposition is setting the bondage to decay. Well, he saw the sisters weeping. And it says he wept, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But it also said he was twice in verse 33 and verse 38 of John chapter 11. He was really angry. He snorted with anger. Now, again, I'll say something about that in my letter. It's very interesting contrast for, for those Christians who try and embrace evolution. Evolution and Jesus are totally opposed. In evolution, death is a, a welcome thing because it allows uh, things to evolve and natural selection to bring something better. That's, I mean, that's the, the myth or that's the belief. Nothing could be more contrary to the way Jesus views death than that. Death is the last enemy, not the means of... How can a Christian, one who claims to follow a Christian, believe that stuff? I don't know. But so many do. Because I think they've never really thought it out before the Lord or really believe. They, they, actually, they, they don't do, I believe, what I put in my letter last week, make the scriptures supreme. Ah, oh, we've all been there. I've been there. I didn't really have real clear views about it until I was 27. But it won't fit. Death demands evolution. I mean, e evolution, I'm sorry, forget that. Cut that. Evolution demands death. Jesus viewed death as an enemy. Evolution cuts out original perfection. And so it's cut out the marriage service that God created marriage in the time of man's innocency. You can't consistently be a Christian and believe in evolution. Jesus shows it here. His anger at death. And yet he submitted to death voluntarily. In order to overcome him who has the power to conquer him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who all their life are in fear of death. Are you in fear of death? Jesus can deliver you from that because he's paid the price. And of course, he raised 
Lazarus from the dead. But poor old Lazarus died again, you know that. It wasn't a, a final resurrection. Hebrews 11 talks about the better resurrection, when you don't die. And when we're all raised, when Jesus returns, we'll never die again. Our bodies will be forever. Okay, so you can't get away from the wrath of the Lamb. But don't forget, on the cross, heaven's love and heaven's justice, or God's anger, met. And Jesus took your sin and my sin, your guilt and my guilt, your punishment and my punishment on himself, which made him cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for three hours, he was battling with this and suffering the infinite punishment. Because every sin against God, you, every sin you commit is an infinite sin. Did you know that? Because it's against an infinite God. But Jesus paid it all. He entered into death to free us. And death is still around. That's why um, technically that Getty song, Sin's Curse Has Lost Its Grip On Me, shouldn't really be there. It's Sin's Curse. It's the curse of the law that's lost its grip. It's not the curse of sin, which is death. Um, and um, and we, we still have that. But I tell you, Jesus Christ has conquered it. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Praise the Lord. So um, there'll be no wrath in heaven. Be sure of that. But I'm afraid between now and then there is. But the good news, fantastic news, is that Jesus has paid the price. And as, again, that hymn says, you know, uh, the wrath of God, that's a really good line, was satisfied. But all my sin on him was laid. And that's the truth. Praise God for it.